Our text is going to be 1 Peter this morning, so I'd encourage you to uh, join me there if you have a copy of God's Word in print or digital form. Uh, Have you ever had that distinct feeling that you don't belong, that you feel just a little bit out of place? Maybe you felt that way ethnically or culturally. I remember being in China, right, and just especially those first few weeks that I was there after uh, my college years. I spent a year in in, in Beijing at the People's University, and I just remember not being able to understand anything that was going on. It's very disorienting. Um, maybe you've been in a spot like that where you don't know the language or you just feel like you're, you're just not in your environment. Uh, perhaps you felt that way economically. Uh, I had a chance to golf at a country club this summer, and it was a lot of fun. But I felt just a little bit out of place uh, with all of these really successful business people and such. And... Uh, uh, maybe you felt out of place spiritually. I remember being in a couple of sports teams, particularly when I think back to my high school days, where I felt very out of place because of the language that they were using, the things that they were talking about. I just, there was this sort of dissonance, and I felt somewhat alone, even though I was part of a team and enjoyed being a part of a team, but I just, there was just that little uh, element that, that I didn't really fit in, in a certain sense. Um, Peter, uh, here in this letter, is writing to a group of believers who he identifies as exiles. Uh, These were people who were living as a minority in regards to their faith. Um, We, too, find ourselves in an environment that is increasingly hostile to our faith, right? So Peter is uh, helping us, helping these believers in the first century, but helping us also to anticipate and process that dynamic of living as exiles. Helps us think about what it looks like and how we navigate those kinds of situations. So a book that certainly was intended to be an encouragement to its original readers, and I believe will be a tremendous encouragement to us as well this morning. Uh, We are still in our uh, Route 66 series, working through the 66 books of the Bible in a 52-week calendar year, which means that Advent's going to look a little different. We are kind of continuing on to finish out that series, even through these weeks of Advent. But I do want to pause. We don't have to look very far in any book of the Bible to uh, see how uh, uh, we are pointed to Christ, okay? And so uh, I want to look at one particular portion here in First Peter here at the outset that certainly gives us an Advent focus. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter 
reflects a bit here. He's described this great salvation that we've received. And then he said the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, uh, were trying to anticipate how this was going to unfold. You know, they were looking for the time and the circumstances in which this Messiah would be, uh, would come. And in in the elements of his suffering and his his glories, uh, his, his power, how are those things going to come together? How can we have a Messiah that was a suffering Messiah and yet also a Messiah that was a victorious Messiah? And the prophets really wrestled with this, trying to understand it. And now, of course, uh, we live uh, 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 in, in a place in history to have seen, at least in part, how that has unfolded, right, through the person of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and so uh, even the angels long to look into these things. Even, even the, the, those in the heavenly realms are amazed to consider what God is doing. And we too certainly ought to uh, marvel. So First Peter, what do we uh, understand about this little letter? Each of the letters in the New Testament have a backstory. Uh, there are people and places and dynamics that help us understand what's going on in the text. So we need to orient a little bit and understand that backstory. The letter was written by the Apostle Peter. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. There's not any other uh, Peters that are under consideration. The early church clearly recognized this to be written by Peter the Apostle, one of the twelve disciples. Peter was a fisherman from Galilee. Uh, Peter was actually introduced to Jesus through his brother, Andrew, uh, who said, this, this Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, Peter, and, and Peter was quick to believe and follow. Peter was one of the 12 disciples and part of the inner circle uh, of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, were given some unique opportunities to accompany Jesus to see some things that even the other disciples did not see. Peter quickly became the leader of the Twelve. His name always stands first in the list of disciples. Uh, Peter was married, although we know little about his wife or family, but he lived in Capernaum, there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he, of course, would become the leading apostle in the early years of the church. He would play a foundational role in the establishment of Christ's church. Uh, The letter was also written to exiles. This is the other thing we need to understand about it. Uh, Believers living as a mistreated minority in an antagonistic culture. Um, These believers were living in several regions of Asia Minor, or what we would know as modern-day Turkey. And the word suffering occurs 17 times in the letter. So these individuals were experiencing certain hardship because of their faith. And this is, again, why Peter gives them this designation as exiles. Uh, They were not facing martyrdom at this time. Uh, That time was coming in the context of Roman rule. Uh, But at this time, uh, the indication is that they were facing slanderous accusations and social ostracism and certain uh, governmental interference in some of their meetings and activities so that that opposition had not reached a fever pitch yet but it was beginning to be felt by these early believers 
Uh, consider the language of exile. You know, this certainly would have been loaded terminology, a loaded concept for Peter and any Jewish listeners who were present uh, because Israel had found themselves in exile, right? Carted off to Babylon. And just try to think in your mind what you would feel if someone came and pulled you out of your house, perhaps separating you from your children, and took you off to a foreign country. What kinds of things would be going on in your heart? Right? I mean, obviously, anger comes to mind. You know, uh, everything I've known has been taken from me, or much of what I know has been taken from me. Uh, there might be a sense of disorientation. Like, I just don't even know how to process what I'm experiencing. I mean, all the rules have now changed. What do I do now? You know, how, how, do, I, how do I live in this environment? Maybe a hopelessness. Certainly that was the case for the Jewish people. Like, they were so outnumbered in, you know, in Babylon, in this powerful country. There's no hope of being restored to their own country again. I mean, that wasn't even on the, other than that God had promised that they would, but from a human standpoint, uh, they would have no hope that they could be restored. Fear, um, fear of the unknown, fear of the future. So, so these, these are things that I think we ought to superimpose over these exiles. And if we're honest, these are things that we experience as we live as exiles, increasingly so, in a culture that is hostile to our faith. It appears that these are predominantly Gentile believers that Peter is writing to. Um, there's references here to their past in terms of idol worship and such that wouldn't have necessarily been part of a Jewish context. So it does seem that Peter's writing to Gentiles, and Peter uses his Greek name, Peter, rather than his Hebrew name, Simon, or his Aramaic name, Cephas. Uh, he chooses to adopt a, a Greek name in writing to this group of people. Uh, we're not exactly sure of Peter's connection to these believers. We don't really have any indication that Peter did evangelistic work in this part of the world. Uh, but Peter became aware of their situation and wrote to encourage them and to challenge them and, and uh, yeah, exhort them how they are to live within this context. It appears that Peter was writing from Rome there is a really obscure sort of cryptic reference at the end of the letter where he says, she who is in Babylon sends you her greetings. Chapter 5, verse 13. So Paul is essentially extending greetings to these believers from the church in Babylon. And that seems to be a reference to Rome. Babylon had come to sort of and again, he's talking about exile here, right? <laughs> he's talking about sort of this godless culture, and that just was synonymous with Babylon in, in Israel's context, for sure. And Rome was the center of that godless, secular culture. It was the headquarters. So Paul extends greetings from the believers there in Babylon. While estranged from the culture, these believers were welcomed by God. There's sort of an interesting tension or juxtaposition 
here in the opening verses of the letter. Let's look at it together. 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So again, these are people that are outsiders to the culture. They're uh, kind of out of step with society, but they are God's people. They are God's elect. They have been chosen and called out by God to be His. And there's this rich description of uh, the, the Father's work in, in, in calling them and the Spirit's work in sanctifying them and then uh, even reflecting on the purpose of their salvation to serve Christ in the world. Um, and so they've been sprinkled with Christ's blood. Uh, their sins have been atoned for. They're at peace with God. So th- this wonderful dynamic. They're at odds with the world, but they're at peace with God. They are his people. So this uh, captures the tension of what it is to, to live as, as exiles. Uh, I'm going to suggest this as uh, a concise purpose statement for the book as we try to just boil it down a little bit. When faced with antagonism and hostility, believers must look to Christ and conduct themselves with courage and grace. So he wants to encourage them uh, to, to lean in, to don't give up, to don't despair. But he also wants to challenge them with how they live, characterized by grace. And there should be a beauty to the way that they live in, in the midst of a hostile culture. And all the way along, he's pointing them to Christ as the consummate example of how Christ suffered. And uh, even when mistreated, right? So this becomes a persistent lens uh, that Peter uh, superimposes over the life of the believer to live like Christ in relationship to suffering. So when faced with antagonism and hostility, believers must look to Christ and conduct themselves with courage and grace. Here's the essential message of Peter's letter. So how do we cultivate a minority mindset? Right? We are a minority uh, as it relates to our faith, as were these believers. Uh, what does that mean? How does Peter prepare them to live faithfully and effectively as a minority, a spiritual minority? And how do we need to be prepared to live as exiles? So the believer's identity. This is the first thing that Peter develops in chapter 1. He wants them to have a very clear sense of who they are. Uh, He talks here about the fact that they have been given a new birth. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So through the work of Christ, we have been made alive, uh, been given new life. There's language here of inheritance in verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. 
So this is, this is a, a tremendous statement. You've been uh, given new birth, new life. You've been welcomed into God's family, adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges that go along with it. Inheritance was a powerful token uh, of that relationship. So a new inheritance, uh, new security, verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's a coming salvation, there's a coming deliverance when Christ returns, and Peter makes much of Christ's second advent, right? His second coming. But he says, even in the interim period, even before Christ returns and delivers you, uh, you are being shielded. You are being shielded. What great language. By God's power. So you have been adopted into God's family, given an inheritance, and you benefit from his protection. <laughs> right? A wonderful aspect of our identity. New perspective, uh, verses 6 through 9. In all this, you greatly rejoice. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is. Is revealed. Verse 8, though you, have now seen, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So he talks here about their, this new perspective. Yes, you suffer. Yes, you experience difficulties. We're not going to deny that. We can't sugarcoat that. But those are temporary things. There is an underlying joy and confidence that comes in this relationship with God, with your identity. And he points as well to new privilege. Uh, This is the section that I I read a few moments ago where Peter talks about this salvation. The the prophets uh, long to, to, to understand how God's promises were going to be fulfilled as it related to the Messiah And even angels long to look into these things, right? We've been given access, uh, a new status. We are participants in this amazing work of redemption. So Peter wants them to know what they have in Christ and wants them to have a very clear sense of their identity. So the believer's identity. uh, But also the believer's responsibility. So Peter then moves uh, out of sort of the the objective reality of who these people are to what they should do. There in chapter 1, verse 13, we have the word therefore, right? In light of this, therefore. And he goes through to identify several general, what I'm calling general expectations. He wants them to live in hope. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So, I want you to, to think clearly. Have a clear sense of your identity. Don't be demoralized or downhearted or despairing. Don't fixate on your circumstances. Stay focused on the end game when Christ is revealed at his coming. 
coming, right? Christ wins. We will find ourselves on the winning side. So maintain, be, be, a, be a person, be people of hope in the midst of hardship and difficulty and struggle. Uh, he encourages them to live to please your heavenly Father. Live to please your heavenly Father. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So live as obedient children. Don't conform to your previous way of life. You are not what you were. You are God's children, and you should seek to emulate your heavenly Father. That means you should be holy. You should be Distinct. You should be set apart. He goes on to challenge them here in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Since you identify yourself as God's children, live like it, right? Live with loyalties to him, not loyalties to the culture. You're, not, you're trying to please your father, not the culture. So, so live to please your heavenly father. He urges them to love each other deeply. Chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Peter is reminding them that if God is their father, then they have other siblings in the family, right? I think this, again, flows naturally out of that. If you are now God's child, then you should emulate your father, seek to please him, and you should love your siblings. Uh, This flows right out of that, a call to love within the family of God. And then he urges them, embrace your calling. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, through 12 rather, embrace your calling. Peter uses a series of metaphors to describe the church's identity, their mission in the world, what, God, what the Father wants them to do, right? what the Father is calling them to do. Uh, one of the most profound here, I think, is that they are a, a house. They're, they're, being, they're like bricks being built together to make a house by which God dwells by his spirit. So uh, this is what we call a temple. You know, a, a, a temple is a place where uh, God meets with humanity. And the church is a temple. Uh, it's a place that has been filled with God's spirit. It's, it's a place where uh, uh, a depraved culture encounters God. Peter's just wanting to say, look, you, you are God's representatives. He goes on to say, you are my priests. You're, you're my mediators. You're, you're mediating with a lost world. You're, you're, you're bringing them to me. And, and Peter just wants them to understand the unique position that they have as his children and as his representatives. And he calls them to, to live out that calling well. 
Notice how he describes it again here in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I want you to live in such an exemplary way that even though people don't like you and they don't like your message, that they would be drawn to God. He uses a, a very unique word here for good. He uses it twice in these verses. Live such good lives among the pagans. And then he, later he talks about that they may see your good deeds. And again, that's a word for good that means beautiful or noble or honorable or eye-catching or winsome. It goes beyond just moral good. He wants them to live beautiful lives, lives that just catch the attention of the world, lives that are just above and beyond morality, mere morality. Uh, we ought to, to be involved in living in that way, to draw people into a right relationship with God, to adorn the gospel, right? So these are general expectations that he has for them in terms of how they, are to, how, to, how they are to behave, how they are to live. And then he has some situational expectations, some, some specific scenarios and, and, in terms of practically speaking, how that works itself out in day-to-day life. Uh, he talks here about proper conduct in society. Proper conduct in society. Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as, to, as uh, the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show Proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So we are to be subject to human authority and governmental leaders, even those who are ungodly, like the emperor. Peter uh, makes it very clear. easy for us to have an adversarial relationship with governmental leaders, particularly those that have ungodly agendas. But God's intent is that we diffuse hostility, that we extend honor to the extent that we are able to our governmental leaders. Obviously, there's an, a limit to that, isn't there? That if the, the government asks us to do certain things that are contrary to God's word, we have to obey God rather than men. But when at all possible, we ought to honor governmental leaders, recognizing that God has established all those who are in positions of leadership. I love how he summarizes there in verse 16, show proper respect to everyone. Boy, that, ought to be, that was one of the more convicting verses for me, <laughs> working through 1 Peter, um, that we would treat everyone as an image bearer of God regardless of their sexual orientation, right, or their, uh, their, their uh, political uh, agendas or moral agendas, uh, we ought to extend 
uh, honor to them. We live in a culture that lacks civility, a rather toxic culture. And Christians certainly ought to stand apart. We ought to have a high view of, of people who are created in the image of God. Told here in this context to fear God. I think Peter's connecting dots for us here. That sometimes the reason we don't honor our governmental authorities is because we don't honor God who established those authorities. And we haven't connected those dots. And Paul, Peter is... Peter is urging them to live under God's authority and subsequently to live under the authority of human leaders. Talks about proper conduct in the workplace. Verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So again, he's creating worst-case scenarios. Slaves, employees, uh, do a good day's work. Even if your employer is unjust or harsh, uh, continue to live in a distinct and exemplary way. And again, Peter puts Christ forward as the example here in chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Right? So even in the face of mistreatment, we should respond with grace and distinction. Proper conduct in the family. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So Peter calls the wife to submit to her husband and presents a rather exaggerated situation of a woman who's married to an unbeliever who maybe has no spiritual sensitivity, is not a godly man, and Peter still calls on her to submit herself, to subject herself to her husband Peter does not put this forward as some sort of a passive resignation. It's just something you have to do. (laughs) But rather, Peter puts it forward as an active strategy to win over that unbelieving husband. Not with words, but with a beautiful life that reflects the love of the gospel. It's God's counterintuitive strategy. We want to fight We want to fight for our rights. We want to react against governmental leaders uh, and change them and win. And God's strategy is that we win them over by grace, with love, with a beautiful life marked by peace. So these are some very specific situations in terms of how he wants them to live out their identity As God's children, as his representatives in the world, this is the posture, this is the tone, this is what it looks like for us in these various types of situations. So the believer's identity and then the believer's responsibility, and then here at the end we have the believer's suffering. And Peter just kind of camps here and unpacks this because this is really the rub. 
You have the believer's identity and then how God wants them to live, but in the context of hostility and mistreatment, mm, <laughs> that is really hard, <laughs> right? And Peter acknowledges it. I love how he acknowledges the struggle. He almost, it's almost like Peter says, okay, now I know what you're thinking. And, he, and he, he, he puts it out there for us and considers this aspect of suffering from a number of different perspectives. He talks about the response to suffering in chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, here, here's sort of the final thing he wants to talk about, right? Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter says, I know how you're inclined to react. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Don't respond in kind. But we are such a rights-oriented culture. We are such a litigious culture. Like, I, I'm not going to surrender my rights. I'm going to fight for my rights. <laughs> Peter says, don't do it. So he talks about the response to suffering. Instead of retaliating, instead of getting angry, he says, I want you to, I want you to be sympathetic. <laughs> There's his word, right? In chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, be like-minded, be sympathetic. I want you to think, why is that guy being such an idiot? What kind of pain is represented in this guy's life? You know, what, what, what's, what's going on there? You know, enter into this individual's world and try to understand it, right? Uh, have compassion on them. A sense of humility. Stop and think about where you would be apart from Christ. You know, these are the kinds of things that need to shape our perspective when we're engaging with someone who is hostile when we're being mistreated uh, we are to respond differently than we normally naturally would uh, the confidence in suffering uh, chapter 3 verse 13 who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Who's going to harm you? I love the question. I mean, people might do a great deal of harm, right? <laughs> but Peter says, even if you do suffer for what is right, you are blessed. God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. Do not be afraid of them. Do not cower. Here Paul says, I don't, I don't want you to just cower in fear, okay, I'm measly, you know, you know, no. Be prepared to give an answer, right? Uh, revere Christ as Lord. Look to Christ's authority. Look to Christ's power, not the power of the culture. And be bold, be courageous, lean in, but do so with gentleness and respect. Right? Even then, even in your courage, even in your boldness to stand up for what is right, 
do it kindly. Do it in a way that's marked by grace. So he wants them to have confidence in suffering. He points them to the model for suffering. Again, he's been doing this all along, but now here in this section, chapter 3, verse 18, he really expands on it and points them to Christ. 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He calls them, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't deserve it. It was wrong. It was mistreatment. And yet Christ took it. He endured it. And we are called to have that same mindset. Christ is the consummate model. Oh, I don't think I have it in here, but the reason for suffering, I don't know if it's in your notes or not, the reason for suffering, chapter 4, verse 3, I think this is fascinating here. We get into the psychology a little bit. Why, Why is the world so angry? Why is the world so angry that we want to obey God? And we want to uh, live according to God's word. Peter tells us, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Because our presence is a reminder to them of their sin. (laughs) That doesn't mean we're better than them. But whenever we talk about God's righteousness, and we have to talk about confession of our sin, it's a reminder to them of their sin, and they don't like it. (laughs) They don't want to hear it. So we have the reason for suffering that's kind of unpacked here in this section. The expectation of suffering, chapter 4, verse 12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, understand, this is, this is part of what it is to follow Christ. Christ was hated by the world, and those who follow Christ will be hated by the world. Don't be disillusioned. Don't, oh, what did I do wrong? Or I, it's going to come. We ought to have an expectation for it. We don't go looking for controversy. We certainly, I appreciated Dan's prayer today, we should, not, we should not experience people's hatred because we are offensive and ugly in the way we carry ourselves, right? But if we suffer for the gospel, so be it. There's an expectation for suffering. And then the encouragement in suffering We're not going to get into this section, but Peter here gives instructions to the elders to be shepherds of God's flock. I think here again, Peter is acknowledging sheep are helpless creatures. They don't have good defense mechanisms. They're somewhat, they're very vulnerable. They need a shepherd. They don't survive well in the wild. They need, sheep need a shepherd. 
And so Peter says, in the context of suffering, I want you to, uh, I want the, the, the elders to shepherd and care for the flock. And he goes on to say, I want the flock to put themselves under the shepherd. So this is God's provision for suffering and how his people are to be cared for and protected in the context of suffering. I do want to give just a, a moment reflection here to the last uh, three verses as, Paul, as Peter rather closes this letter. I think it's very insightful. We get a glimpse of Peter's heart here. Chapter 5, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Notice again that none of these early church leaders were serving alone. Uh, Peter is working here with Silas, who had also been one of Paul's faithful co-workers. Paul makes reference here to the local believers in Rome who were sending their greetings to these exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor. And he also references John Mark with whom he had a particularly strong relationship. He calls John Mark his son. Matter of fact, John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, and church history tells us that John Mark was writing Peter's memoirs. He was recording Peter's account of the life of Christ. So Paul has this rich context of colleagues, uh, as he served Christ. And then notice that he encourages these believers to cultivate warm relationships with each other as well. To greet one another with the kiss of love, or a holy kiss. It comes up a number of different points in the New Testament letters. Uh, if we were to bring that into our culture, I mean, we've maybe been to those cultures where it's maybe the three one on this side, one on this side, one on this side, you know. But in our culture, he's saying, hug one another. Extend a warm handshake to one another. Right? He's urging them, calling them into community. Uh, in the midst of their suffering, don't go it alone. You can very easily feel alone. In various contexts in our lives, in, in our communities, uh, we're not alone. <laughs> And we ought to band together uh, as family in the midst of our exile in this foreign land. 